0: Hi, true crime fans, you're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster, and in today's episode, I'm going to tell you about a case that comes from the area of Copper, Oregon and Applegate Lake. The lake itself really doesn't have much to do with the episode. I just think it's a really fun fact. It's what's underneath it that has to do with our episode today. Copper, Oregon no longer exists, it's a ghost town, but Not a ghost town like you might be imagining. The town of Copper was inundated in 1980 to form Applegate Lake as a flood control project. Copper was located about a mile from the Oregon-California border. The old road now serves as a boat ramp, and the lake that now occupies the old town has a maximum depth of 188 feet. If you Google pictures of this lake, and you should, Applegate Lake, it is beautiful. It's located in the area of the Siskiyou National Forest. And this is a very dense forested area. It, this is the Pacific Northwest. This is Bigfoot country. There's tons of wildlife, lots of national parks. Richard Coden had planned to spend Labor Day 1974 hauling gravel in his truck, to add to his driveway when the truck that he had planned to use broke down. Since his weekend plans were out of commission, the family, Richard, 28, Belinda, June, 22, and their two children, David, five, and Melissa, who was only five months old, decided to leave their home in White City for the weekend and go camping. This was not uncommon for the family. They had been camping before, and they were familiar with the campgrounds in the area of Copper. The family also took along their basset hound named Droopy. Richard and David walked with their dog Droopy to the Copper General store at about 9 a.m. on September first, 1974. They purchased a quart of milk, and they were seen leaving the store on foot, headed back to their campsite with their dog, Droopy. This was the last anyone seen of the family, until Droopy was seen alone at about 2.30 p.m., four miles from the family's campsite. He was seen again a few miles further, still alone, at about 6.30 p.m. But it wasn't until the family didn't show up for dinner at Belinda's mother's house that somebody realized that something was very wrong. The family had planned to head home that day, September 1st, and they were going to stop by Belinda's mother's house for a Labor Day dinner. Belinda's mother, Ruth, knew that it was not like the family to miss this dinner. She only lived one mile from where the family was camping. She was worried, so she headed over to the campground. Ruth's heart must have hit the ground when she walked upon the eerie campsite. The carton of milk was sitting on the table, half gone. The dish tub that the family had been using was sitting there, full of cold water. The family's fishing poles were sitting there against the tree. The only thing that was missing was their bathing suits. Richard's wallet with $21 in it and his watch that was on the more expensive end sat on the ground. Belinda's purse was there. Folded clothes sat on a cot. The family's F-150 was parked at the site with the rest of their belongings inside. Belinda's cigarettes were sitting open at the campsite, but there was no sign of the Coden family. It seems like Ruth waited a few minutes, most likely considering her options and wondering what she should do. I mean, she had no proof that something had happened to the family, but she knew something had happened to the family. She waited for a few minutes and gave up and headed over to the police station. She took police back to the campsite for a look, and State Trooper Erickson is quoted as saying, It was spooky. Even the milk was still sitting on the table. Even though the campsite seemed ominous, they weren't sure if the family was missing yet. There was no evidence that anything violent had occurred, and nothing had been stolen. The $21 in Richard's wallet was worth about $110 today. It was also getting dark, and the terrain there was rough and the forest dense. The authorities decided to wait and see if the family returned. But the family did not return. Droopy, their dog, did show up at the general store between 2 and 3 a.m. It seems to me like Droopy showing up at the general store was really what put everyone over the edge. It really let them know that something had happened to this family. After that they did not mess around. They started the search the next day, and it was one of the largest in Oregon's history. The ground search lasted for five days. There were state and local police, explorer scouts, volunteers, the U.S. Forest Services, the Oregon National Guard, and they flew helicopters and planes overhead that were equipped with infrared photography. The purpose of the infrared photography was that it was supposed to have been able to detect newly overturned dirt. Despite all these efforts, the searches returned nothing. Two officers were eventually assigned to interview people for this case full-time. Over 150 people were interviewed. Now, in a case like this, Sometimes there's the thought that the family could be running from something, debt for example. But they quickly found that Richard had a good job. He drove a logging truck for Steve Wilson Logging. He made enough to support his family comfortably. Not extravagantly, but comfortably. The family had bought a new home and they didn't have much debt. There really doesn't seem to be anything strange about the family at all. And when I saw a picture of them, oh, they were so adorable. I mean, both the parents were just really great looking people. They looked really normal, but just really beautiful people. And their children were beautiful as well. Both Richard and Belinda had families that loved them. By the end of September, family members were asking for the public's help. They asked people to write letters to the senator requesting FBI involvement, and people did. 200 people responded. But there was no evidence of a federal crime, so at that time, they just couldn't get the FBI involved. Later, the FBI did get involved. By the end of October, friends and family were asking people to contribute To their $2,000 reward. They were hoping that a higher reward would drive someone to come forward for information. They did get $350 to increase their reward. Richard's sister, Lori, wrote a letter that was published in the Medford Mail Tribune, pleading with hunters in the area to report anything that they thought could be connected to the family's disappearance. But it wasn't until two men went to the area panning for gold that anything would be found. It was seven months later, April 12th, when two men wandered into the area, seven miles away from the campsite where the Cowden family had last been seen. The men had been panning for gold near Copper and had heard stories of the missing family, but they didn't think twice about them. They hadn't had much luck panning near copper, and they decided to try panning for gold closer to Mutton Cove. One of the men headed over to a tree that had fallen and tripped over a log. He basically came face to face with the skull of Richard Coden. They went straight to police, and they were able to collect a portion of the reward. They actually hung around for a few days before they left to go pan for gold elsewhere. They picked up metal detectors and actually helped search the area for bullets. Richard's remains were out in the open for more than six months, and they had to be identified through dental records. They found the skeletal remains of Belinda, David, and Melissa in a cave about 200 yards from Richard. The strange part of this is that a volunteer that had helped search for the family, originally, stated that he had searched in that cave and found nothing. Police thought maybe the volunteer was confused about which cave that he had searched in, and they asked him to lead them there, and he did it. He led them straight to the cave where the family was found, with no problem. The entrance to the cave had been covered with rocks so that no one would find the bodies, but apparently wet weather had caused a rock slide, leaving the bodies exposed. The individual that claimed that they had originally searched that cave claimed that the entrance was not closed up at that time. This led police to question if Belinda and the children could have been murdered elsewhere and taken to the cave post-mortem. Richard, on the other hand, was found in the open. His remains were scattered a bit because of animals and weather. I mean, six months in the wilderness is not easy on remains. But the way his remains were found on the steep hillside, it's thought that he had possibly been tied to a tree. They were not able to conclude how Richard actually passed. But it's thought that he was most likely shot as Belinda and David had been shot. Poor little Melissa had passed away from blunt force trauma to the head. I do think that it's strange that Belinda and the children were found near Richard, but not with him. Almost like someone had played a sick, torturous game with the family. Police believe that the Coden family was abducted shortly before noon that fateful day, at gunpoint, and put into a vehicle and driven to the area that they would be brutally murdered. There were people of interest that they spoke to at the beginning of the investigation, but most of them were cleared. There were also people that claimed to have visions or dreams in this case that thought that they could solve the crime, but none of the questioning or the tips led anywhere. Richard's father briefly came under suspicion a few months later when he unfortunately committed suicide. It seems that between Richard, Belinda, David, and Melissa's murder, in some unfortunate circumstances, with a few of his other children, his mentality was just not in a good place. He was cleared of the murders. But there is another person that is suspected of committing the Cowden family murders. They were actually the only real suspect police ever had in the murders. But they never had enough evidence to convict him. Duane Lee Little, who was 25 years old when the family disappeared, had been previously convicted of rape and murder when he was only 15 years old. It was 1964 when Duane raped and murdered 16-year-old Orla Fay Phipps. Police held Duane until he was 16 years old and then turned him over to the adult trial court. Duane was convicted of first-degree murder as an adult in 1966. His lawyer did try to appeal his conviction. There were a few different grounds that they were trying to use to appeal, but the most notable was that they were trying to claim that the prosecution could not prove rape because it could not be proven that he penetrated her while she was alive. And that was a load of crap, and no one bought it, thank goodness. But still, Dwayne was paroled in 1974, just three months prior to the Coden family murders. I do feel kind of bad here, because not too long ago I did an episode on a very young girl, I believe she was 15 or 16, and she had murdered another young girl. And I had so much sympathy for her being so young, and she had a very, very abusive life. I just definitely always have sympathy for young people and the fact that they're going to spend the rest of their lives in jail because although these are not excusable mistakes and they deserve punishment, I feel like, you know, people that are 60 and commit a crime they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. But these people, if they're 15 and they commit a crime, you know, they're spending a lot longer in prison, you know. Um, I feel really bad, though, because in this case, this person was 15 and they committed a crime and they were released on parole and continued to commit crimes. And I think that this is probably something that... Everyone in law enforcement and in the court system battles with all the time in these cases. You know, do you let this person try to live their life again or are they going to go on and commit horrendous crimes and then, and then part of the blame would come back on you for allowing them to be out? And I think that those must be extremely hard decisions for the people that deal with these things every day. So basically, they could prove that Dwayne and his parents were in the area where the Coden family went missing. But they could not connect him to the murders. They even had witnesses who saw Dwayne and his family in the area. And one couple believed that they saw Dwayne's vehicle, which was a truck, with people in the bed of the truck and a basset hound trailing behind in the area where the family had been murdered, but they could not prove it. They searched their home and Duane's truck. They did not find anything in Duane's truck. Actually, it was spotless. It seemed newly cleaned. They didn't find anything in Duane's truck. Police were able to arrest Duane, but not for the murder of the family. They were able to arrest him after him and his girlfriend got into an argument and she called police stating that she had seen Duane with a gun, which is a parole violation. It was a long shot because it really was just his girlfriend saying that he had a gun, but they were able to hold him on this parole violation until 1977 when a psychiatrist recommended Dwayne Lee Little be released on parole. State police were against it, but the parole board released him anyway. Dwayne went on to rape and stab a young pregnant woman who thankfully survived her ordeal with him. And Dwayne was put away for a life term plus 40 years by a judge that stated he did not want to see Dwayne released a few years later on parole. This case has never been solved. So tell me, what do you think? Is it a coincidence that the Coden family was murdered in the same area that Dwayne Lee Little had been in that day? Or do you think he did it? Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Copy Murder and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast 5-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the Internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at Coffee Murder Mystery at Gmail.com. Thanks for your support.